morning. Let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that as those who were formerly dead. We can remember that old way of life. And we have celebrated this morning the newness of Jesus Christ. That is ours because of his finished work. We celebrate it, Lord, and we, we pray that as we open our Bibles now, That your Holy Spirit would help us to celebrate it all the more and to look at our lives in light of it. That we might consider ways that perhaps we are looking back toward our old manner of life and trying to marry it once again to the newness of Christ. Trying to bring two worlds together in ways that are incompatible with one another, we, we pray that you would help us to not only understand the text, Lord, but to apply it rightly and to walk in greater faithfulness to you. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, Mark 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. This morning, and as you're, as you're opening your Bibles there, if you would stand with me, we're going to just read two of these verses, verses 21 and 22. Once we've done that, then we'll go back and, and begin at verse 18 a few minutes later. So let's just read verse 21 and 22 of chapter 2. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You may be seated. As we think back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the evangelist began with the anticipation of this new work of God as as written by the prophet Isaiah. And then John begins to prepare the way by preaching repentance. Then we see Jesus coming on the scene, bringing a new teaching with authority and doing unbelievable works that no one has ever seen before. He frees people from demons He heals all manners of diseases, even leprosy, and we find that he even has authority to forgive sins. And the wonder of the newness of the kingdom that Jesus brings is captured in the latter half of 2.12. So look back at 2.12. It says in the middle of the verse, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. It's a wonderful new kingdom that Jesus is bringing. But the more that the people watch Jesus, the more that they see Him doing things that they consider to be 
against the rules, things that he's not supposed to do. They have their old, tried and true, safe spaces, their old way of doing things, and his newness is pushing the boundaries in various ways. Jesus, don't get us wrong. We, we love the teaching. We love the miracles and all that stuff. Please, please keep that coming. It's, it's wonderful. But if, if you could just stay in your lane, that would be awesome. We, we, we like the newness, but we, we want to hold on to the old also. That's the subtext of, of the passage that we're studying this morning. And we've noted in recent weeks that, that we're looking at a, a, a section of Mark where Mark is bringing to us a number of controversies where people are bringing questions to Jesus. They're kind of challenging Him a little bit. They're asking questions about Him, and the answers to those questions are dropping significant truths about who He is and about His kingdom. And this controversy poses a significant question, the answer to which brings some clarity to all the other controversies around it. And boiled down to its essence, the the question here in this passage is, why are you upsetting the apple cart, Jesus? Why, why can't you just fit your new thing in with our old way of life? And the answer is, well, I'm bringing a completely new thing, a completely new kingdom, and the new is just incompatible with the old. And you're going to have to choose one or the other. Many, prior to coming to Christ... They struggle because they they do want a piece of Jesus. They want part of what He brings. They want a Savior, but they don't really want a Master. And some of us, even after we have come to Jesus, we find ourselves drifting back to our old way of life. We find some things that we kind of miss about, about life before Jesus, and we try to marry the old to the new after the fact. So whether we're outside of Christ or whether we are, we've been walking with Jesus for many years, the idea of, of the text is the same for all of us. The new is incompatible with the old. Following Jesus entails leaving the old behind and taking up the newness of Jesus, believing that the new is better than the old. And so Mark puts in front of us first this morning that Life prior to Jesus was a time of mourning. Life prior to Jesus was a time of mourning. So let's go back up to verse 18 now and look there. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. We'll stop right there. Luke 18 tells us that the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week. And we might assume, it's, it's safe to assume probably that the disciples of John also fasted twice a week. We don't know for sure, but... That they fasted regularly was something that the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees had in common. It was just an outward sign of piety. And it was a big part of their religious life. We fast and we fast hard. An interesting thing to note is that the only fast that was commanded in the Old Testament was the fast on the Day of Atonement. Every other fast was voluntary. And if we look at all of the Old Testament, it seems that fasting for the most part was associated with mourning, mourning over the loss of loved ones, as in 1 Samuel 31, and mourning over sin, as in Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. Mourning 
I'm sorry, fasting was associated with mourning. And this fasting as a sign of mourning, we could think of it as emblematic of, of all of life before Christ. The, the old covenant, the law, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, even Moses himself, these, these were all imperfect shadows designed to cause longing for a more perfect provision, the substance which is the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those Old Testament institutions, they were imperfect by design. For example, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 says that in the priesthood and in the Old Testament sacrifices, there was a perpetual reminder of sins, not a removal of sins. And as the story of the Old Testament progresses with the people of God continuously failing to walk in faithfulness to Him, that reminder of sins becomes more and more significant and the people begin to realize more and more we are desperately sinful and we need something that is more helpful to us than these institutions that we already have. We need something that can actually remove sin. And so, in large part, the Old Testament is a book of mourning and longing. Mourning for sin and longing for something better, something that can free us from sin. Many of us, if we look back at our pre-conversion days, we might think of them also as as days of mourning in a sense. Like like the Jews in the Old Testament, we were caught in this cycle of, of sin and pride, needing help desperately, we were, we were objects of the wrath of God. Now, we may not have known what we were waiting for, but they did know what they were waiting for. They were waiting for a Messiah. And these people in the early chapters of Mark, they had to have been wondering, this Jesus from Nazareth, could He be the guy? Is it possible that He's the Messiah? But it's interesting to watch. They wanted a Messiah, but they didn't want him infringing on their turf. They didn't want him challenging their ideas of what he was supposed to be like. For example, in John chapter 3, some of these disciples of John, they came running to John, in a sense, tattling on Jesus for some of the things that Jesus was doing. They came to John saying, hey, look, Jesus, he's baptizing people. But you're John, the baptizer. he's, He's infringing on your turf. And and John says to them, hey, that's okay. This is what we want him to do. We want him to do it. I'm supposed to decrease, and he's now supposed to increase. This is a good thing. But even John, later on, finds himself seeing Jesus doing things that don't fit with what he expects of the Messiah. And then John sends those same disciples to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, asking the question, are you the guy? Or should we look for somebody else? So we, ha- we have this weird thing going on. They, they want to be saved from life before Christ, but they also want to hold on to some of the things from life before Christ. And some of us, some of us are that way. We want to be forgiven. We don't want to go to hell. We want these good things from God. We want to enjoy this and that from after Christ, but we also want to enjoy this or that from our pre-conversion days. We want a Savior, but we don't really want a Master. And in this text, slowly but surely, many people in Israel begin to wonder, why isn't this guy 
reading from our script. And so the rest of verse 18, it shouldn't surprise us. Look at, look at the rest of verse 18. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So if you're reading the ESV as I am, it says, People came and asked him this question. The original text just says the generic, they came. And I think it makes more sense to understand that this is the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees asking this question because they're the closest antecedent to they came. So they're asking this surface question, and there's an underlying question at the foundation. The surface question, which he's going to answer in verses 19 and 20, is what's the deal with the no fasting? Explain that to us. The underlying question, which he's going to answer in verses 20, 21 and 22, is why are you changing things? Why, why can't you just fit your new thing into our old way of doing things? And you can hear that underlying question in some of the other questions that have been asked and will be asked in the surrounding controversies, like the first controversy. Why, why is he saying the things that he's saying? Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And later on, we'll, we'll, we'll find the question being asked, why do his disciples do what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Why is he changing things? Why is this new kingdom that he's bringing conflicting with our way of doing things? It seems that they're so fixed on the Old Testament shadows that they want the substance, which is Christ, to be conformed to those shadows. And he's now going to explain to them, that's not really the way it works. He's going to explain first. He's going to answer that surface question. And to do that, he's, he, he's going to explain that life in Christ is a time of joy. Life before Christ, time of mourning. Life in Christ is a time of joy. Completely different way of life. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. A wedding is, is a time for what? It's time for what? Celebration. Ken married off his daughter yesterday. And everybody was celebrating there. Nobody was fasting. Why, why, why wouldn't they fast? Because fasting is a sign of mourning. At, at a wedding, everybody's feasting. It's a time of celebration. You, you, you don't do those th- two things together. Now, Jesus, as he's using this illustration of, of a of a wedding, he's not just he's just, just grabbing some random illustration out of the air, but rather he's going back to a very meaningful and important illustration from the Old Testament, one that is very meaningful to his position as the Messiah. Like in the Old Testament, God is the husband of his people Israel, and now Jesus is saying, I am the husband of my people, the church. Jesus is the one for whom his people have been longing forever. And that, that imagery of, of the church being the people of God and He is their husband, we find that in Song of Songs and Hosea and Isaiah and, and Ezekiel. The disciples are like the groomsmen of the bridegroom who is Christ. The groomsmen celebrate and they, they feast with the bridegroom. And, and that's why John, John the Baptist says in John 3.29, the friend of the bridegroom hears the bridegroom's voice and rejoices because of what he hears. Jesus is here now, and it's time to celebrate. This is what we've been waiting for all these centuries. Now, about the disciples, that they are at this point in time, 
not fasting doesn't mean that they'll never fast. It doesn't mean that they'll never mourn. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in that day. So Jesus is going to be taken away, he, he's revealing here. This is the first mention in the, in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus' death. He's alluding to his own death here. He's going to be taken away from them, and there's going to be those brief few days between Jesus' arrest and his resurrection that his disciples are going to mourn. Now, the, the, the Gospels don't necessarily record them fasting, but you can imagine that they're not really interested in eating during, during those days because they're mourning. Now, Jesus' death is the whole reason that anyone would celebrate in His coming in the first place. He's come to be the better priest, to be the better sacrifice, the better tabernacle. He's come to do what the old system couldn't do, which was to cleanse man from sin and reconcile him to God. And Jesus says, when he's taken away, then they'll mourn. But in John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, yeah, you're going to be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Very shortly, your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. And what is he referring to then? He's referring to his resurrection. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back, and then you're going to be joyful. Now, here's a significant point for you and I as we consider this text, this brief time of sorrow that Jesus is referring to here in verse 20. That sorrow is now over. You and I have Christ. Our lives are a time of joy. There there is no sorrow in, in terms of the fact that we've lost Christ. No, we have Christ. We, we missed this time of fasting, so to speak, that the, that the original disciples suffered. That that brief period from Jesus' arrest to His resurrection. I wonder how many of us could could use a shift in our perspective on our current lives in that regard. Think think with me through the, the exodus of the people of Israel through the early chapters of the book of Numbers. God just, He shows wonder after wonder and He demonstrates care after care feeding the people from heaven and setting up the tabernacle so that they can be near Him. In those early chapters of of Exodus, Exodus and all the way through Numbers, there are just long swaths of Scripture dedicated to God showing kindness by setting up these institutions so that He might be near His people and they might be near Him. And then, boom! Numbers 11.1, we read... And the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. They're overwhelmed by their misfortunes in the presence of a God who has chosen them, set them free from slavery, and provided everything that they need. And do you remember what their complaint was? Their complaint was... Why can't we have some of the old things that we enjoyed back in slavery, back in Egypt? See, that they have so quickly become accustomed to freedom from slavery that they have taken God for granted, His presence for granted. They have forgotten their former misery and they've begun to long for meat from Egypt. 
And this is exactly what sin does to us. It takes our eyes off of the better newness of God's gifts and turns them back toward the acrid oldness of Egypt. The Israelites, they want freedom, but they also want some of the delicacies of slavery. I wonder if that sounds familiar at all to any of us, if if we can find any signs of that kind of thing in our own hearts. Have any of us done that kind of thing, harbored that kind of sentiment in our own thoughts, words, cares in the last years, months, maybe the last days and hours? There's a song that we, that we sing occasionally, sang it this morning. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. Heaven has given me everything in Christ. And yet how quickly do we become desensitized to that goodness of Christ that we take Him for granted and our sinful hearts begin to turn back toward the num-nums of Egypt and we lament that we, we can't have the things of the world. We begin to lament that, that Jesus won't let us react to the bad things in our lives the way that we used to be able to to, to react to them before Christ. We, we can't have the bad attitudes that we used to have. And, and we more acutely begin to feel the loss of the things that we laid down when we followed Him than we feel the glory of all that we gained in Him. We, we desperately need to... We, we need a, a daily paradigm shift that comes from preaching the gospel to ourselves. Bridegroom has come. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we were staring eternity and hell right in the face, but He rescued us from that, rescued us from slavery to sin. He reconciled us to the Father. He put His Holy Spirit inside of us so that our every need is supplied. That should overwhelm any desire for earthly things. It should overwhelm all of our even legitimate earthly pleasures so that the joy of a risen Christ is worn outwardly on our countenances. We ought never be like wedding guests fasting at the feast. That should not be true of Christians. And it won't be if we are daily preaching the gospel to ourselves. Life before Christ is a time of mourning. Life in Christ is a time of joy. And that brings us to the the deeper issue of this question that's been asked of Jesus. Jesus, why can't you fit your your new thing into our old way of life? Why can't you do that? And the bottom line answer that Jesus gives in the last two verses of our passage is, the new is incompatible with the old. It's just incompatible with the old. So look with me again at verse 21. No one, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. You remember when you were a little kid, you're at the store, your mom's buying you clothes, you try on that shirt, it fits perfectly, but your mom says, Okay, that fits, but we need to buy the next size up because when you wash it, it will going to shrink. Everybody knows that. They even knew it back in Jesus' day. 
When you wash something, it shrinks. So when you have a hole in this old garment, you want to patch that with old fabric that has already shrunk. If you, if you patch it with new fabric that has not yet shrunk, when you wash it, it's going to tear. And you're going to have a worse hole than you had in, in, in the beginning. This is Jesus' answer to that underlying question. Why can't you just fit your new thing into our old way of life? His answer is, look, I am something completely new. I cannot coexist with that old way of life. And if you want to force me to, to be joined to that old thing, there's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. You can't do it. And to emphasize that point, he uses a second illustration. We want to keep our eyes open as we're studying the Scriptures to see repetition. We see repetition in illustrations or, or, or doubling of a statement. It means that the Holy Spirit wants to really make an impression upon us. And that, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a doubling. So look at verse, verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. New wine as it ferments, it gives off gases. So it needs to be put in a container that can expand. Well, old wineskins, they gave it the office. I mean, they've, they've done their stretching. And if you try to put new wine in those things, they're just going to burst. And you're going to lose the wine. You're also going to lose the skins. They're not going to be good for anything anymore. You're going to have a mess on your hands. Old wineskins are incompatible with new wine. New, fresh wineskins are able to stretch. They're able to, to accommodate those gases. New, fresh wineskins, they are compatible with new wine. Now, this illustration is, is similar to the bridegroom illustration in that Jesus isn't just grabbing a random yet convenient illustration, but he's, he's reaching back to something significant in the Old Testament. Wine has great significance in the Old Testament. So t- turn with me over to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. Joel 1 is a chapter where we find both the elements of wine and fasting in the same place. Joel is about judgment and restoration. We get both of them. Split almost in half. First we get judgment, then we get restoration. And the judgment is depicted by an army of locusts coming and just devouring the land, wiping out all the produce of the land. And when we pick up here in verse 10, that has just happened. The, the locusts have devoured the land. Verse 10, Joel 1.10, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because, of, because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine dries up, the Fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. And we might think, well, yeah, of course their gladness dries up because they don't have anything to eat or drink anymore. Makes sense. But their gladness is drying up because of a deeper reality that's attached to the the devastation of the land. There's a deeper thing going on here. 
And, and we find that in verse 13. Look at 13. But on, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. See, the, the, the tragedy of this judgment is that the implements of worship have been cut off from the land. And what we're receiving here is, is a picture of, of the fact that the real devastation of sin is that it robs us of the joy of fellowship with God. There, there is no grain for the grain offering. There's no wine for the drink offering. Sin has disrupted their worship. And that's why the priest wails. So what should they do? Look at verse 14. Consecrate a fast. So there we've got the fasting element. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. Cry out to the Lord. So that, that, that mourn before the Lord and seek the Lord. And what is it, what is it that, they're, that they're longing for? What is it that they want? What's assumed in the text that they want back? They want back that which they have lost, which is fellowship with God. That's what restoration will mean. Not just so that they can eat and drink stuff again. They want God back. So look at chapter 2 then. Look at chapter 2. Beginning in verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Acts chapter 2 says that this pouring out the Spirit on all flesh takes place in Acts chapter 2. And so this, this returning of the wine, this returning of the fellowship, this returning of God to be among His people takes place before Acts chapter 2 in the first advent of Jesus Christ. So this future overflowing wine, it refers to the coming of Jesus. The, the, the return of the ability to have close fellowship with the Father. This is what Jesus accomplished in His first advent. And it's better than the old wine of the Old Testament. The worship afforded by the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices... It was imperfect because it still kept man at arm's length from God. He, he could not really be in God's presence. But through Christ, we have been brought into the holy of holies. And we stand in the very presence of God, holy and justified, enjoying fellowship with Him as we were created to do. Jesus is better wine than what was lost. He is better wine than that, what, that which was afforded by the old system. 
And you know that story about Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2? Is that story just about Jesus accommodating his mom? His mom says, hey, why don't you make some wine for these people? He's hesitant to do it. She, she stays on him, and finally he does it. Is that, is that about him just accommodating his mom being a good son? No, there's way more to that. And the significance of that story comes in what the master of the feast says to the bridegroom at the very end. He says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. In other words, Jesus brings the new, better wine. Jesus' illustration then here in in Mark chapter 2, is bursting with meaning. He is the new wine. And and we we should then think of the Lord's Supper. Take and drink. This is my blood. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. The life and joy that Jesus brings, it couldn't be delivered by those old structures. Those old systems, the feasts, the, the fasts, the 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 priesthood, the tabernacle, the law, the old covenants, the sacrifices, they were shadows pointing to Him. He's the substance. He supersedes them. They didn't bring life. They merely pictured the life that comes in Him. And it's not that He now comes along and contradicts those things, but by fulfilling the picture that they were, He now makes them obsolete. Hebrews 8.13. And so then to try to take him and keep him in that container, it's only going to make a mess. He mentions here that if, if you put new wine into old wineskins, both are going to be destroyed. And this is exactly what happens later on in, in the book of, of Mark. Jesus is going to be killed. And so also the system and the people and the structures into which they tried to confine him. All, all destroyed. Similarly, the person who says, I, I want to take Jesus, but I want him to fit into my way of life. Or I want to incorporate him into my agenda. I want him to be my co-pilot. That's, well, that's not going to work. That that way of life leads to destruction because it's indicative of a life that wants a savior, not a master. New wine belongs in new wineskins. And the new wineskin, the fresh wineskin that Jesus is, is talking about here, it is a picture of a humble, repentant, surrendered believer. A person who surrenders to Christ saying, Jesus, you're in charge. I'm along for the ride. My old way of life, that, that, that's, that's going away. Your new life is replacing it. My agenda, that's going away. Your kingdom agenda is replacing it. I'm not the pilot of anything. You're the pilot. I'm along for the ride. This is what it means to call Jesus Master. This is what it means to call Jesus Lord. The disciples are the perfect example of this in this context. Strictly speaking, The question posed is about them. Remember what was asked here. 
why do your disciples not fast like we do? Of course, Jesus is, is the foundational concern underlying the issue. But to follow the illustration, Jesus is saying, look, the disciples aren't fasting because they're behaving in a way that is consistent, that is compatible with the new, com- the, the new kingdom that I'm bringing. I'm bringing a completely new thing. They have left their old kingdom and they are joining mine. They're not trying to marry the two together. The disciples dropped everything in light of everything that they had to gain in me. They are new wineskins compatible with new wine. New wine belongs in new wineskins. Paul writes about this. He, he, he writes about this, this kind of mindset, the disposition of a new wineskin. He doesn't use that phrase. But he writes about a heart that has this kind of, this kind of thinking in it. Let me read to you from it. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. That was 2 Corinthians 5, verses 13 through 15. And I'm going to tack on verse 17, which is this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Therefore, the new has come. When we study the Scriptures, we, we need to understand that any passage in the Word will have one interpretation. One interpretation, and the interpretation here is that our new life in Christ is incompatible with the old life before Christ. Our new life in Christ is incompatible with our old life before Christ. We also want to keep in mind that 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 one interpretation can have many different applications. We can apply that truth in, in many different ways. And so as we're thinking about applying that truth this morning, I I would like to put a couple of of things on your agenda, some things that you could think about as you're you're seeking to apply the truth today and this afternoon and this week and beyond. First of all, consider before the Lord ways that you may be trying to squeeze Him into your old manner of life or ways that you're trying to marry Him in his agenda, to your agenda. So some, some sub-questions that would go along with, with that idea is, do, do you have any priorities that don't look like the priorities of Jesus? Do you have any priorities that don't look like the priorities of Jesus? Are there, are there friendships outside of Christ that have become so big that they have begun to be detrimental to your walk with Christ. Now, we need to be careful with that one because we talked last week about how important it is to pursue relationships with unbelievers. So we're not saying cut ourselves off from the world. We're just saying we want to make sure that, that we don't have any relationships that are becoming so, so important outside of Christ that they're leading us away from Christ. Do I have any relationships that have become so big outside of Christ that they're detrimental to my walk with Christ? Do I have any hobbies or activities that have become so big that even though they're not sinful, 
They are preventing me from being faithful in areas that He is calling me to be faithful in. Do I have any activities in my, in my life that aren't inherently sinful, but they are preventing me from being faithful in other ways? Are there any closely held political views that as I read the Scriptures, I see these things aren't consistent with the whole counsel of God? That's the first thing. Are there, are there any ways that I'm trying to fit Jesus into my old way of life? Ways that I'm trying to marry His agenda to my agenda? Secondly, consider ways that you can rehearse the superior goodness of the newness of Christ compared to the oldness of your deadness and sin. Consider ways that you can, you can rehearse the superior goodness of Christ compared to the oldness of your deadness and sin. You know, we can... The further we get away from, from our conversion, begin to think of all the things that we have given up in order to follow Jesus. And we can begin to think of, of following Jesus in terms of all the things that cause us to mourn associated with the walk of Christ. But no, following Jesus is the path of joy because He is the source of all good things. Psalm 16.2 says, I say to Yahweh, and, and we know from, from all over the Scriptures that the New Testament interprets the Scriptures for us and tells us that Yahweh is Christ. Yahweh is the three in one. Christ is Yahweh. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. You are my master. I have no good apart from you. You see what, see what the psalmist is saying there? He is saying Christ is master. He is the source of all good. He, he's, he's connecting master with everything that is good. It is good for God to be master over me. The fact that, that, that Christ is my master, that is what makes everything good in my life. I have nothing good apart from Christ as master. That is so antithetical to everything that the world would have me to believe. I have to be my own master in order to have happiness and joy in this life. Not so, says the Holy Spirit. Christ as master leads to all things joyful. In fact, two verses later, the psalmist says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In other words, if we follow what, what the world would prescribe by looking for things outside of Christ for our joy, our sorrows will then multiply. It's not sorrowful to follow Christ and make Him master. No, that's the way of joy. It's following other masters that cause our sorrow to multiply. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's how Psalm 16 ends. Psalm 16 is, is, is the heart of a new wineskin speaking to us. Wineskins ready to stretch in any way required of them by the Lord. And, and it's a privilege to be a vessel of that new wine. C carrying this, this superior wine. Wine that's better than the old wine. The, the wine of, of perfect fellowship with the Father. Christ as, as, as our master. So again, as, as, we, as we close here, I'll pray here in, in just a moment. And, and I would encourage you as we, as we have a moment of silence, consider those two things. How am I trying to marry Christ with my old way of life? And how can I rehearse the superior goodness 
of Christ compared to my old deadness outside of Christ in such a way that I embrace Him and jettison that old way of life. Let's pray together. Father, would you do us the kindness of making it the habit of our lives to begin each day and punctuate each hour with thoughts of gospel truth, reminding ourselves by the power of the Spirit and the prompting of the Spirit to think about the fact that the bridegroom has come A new and better wine is ours. And we have the privilege as new and fresh wineskins to be the receptacles of that wine. Help us to celebrate that reality, Father. And and continue to celebrate a complete separation from the old and celebration of the new. Would you help us to do that, Father? Would you help us to to think ever more every day of new ways to rehearse that truth? And would you move us also, Father, to, to be aware of ways that we are trying to fit Jesus into our agenda, ways that we are trying to marry him with a way of life that is incompatible with his newness? Would you move us to repent of that, Lord, and celebrate his newness? and walk in faithfulness. Would you please do that for us, Father? We ask all of this in Jesus' name.